Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitor is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. Some of this week's topics include, of course, the Facebook settlement with the FTC for $5 billion and the SEC for $100 million, Microsoft settling its FCPA action. We ask, can ethical culture be measured? And what is a pulse check? What is the intersection of FCPA and enforcement and suspension and debarment? We take a look at five compliance takeaways from Walmart. I ask, is Santa Claus real in the context of bribery and corruption? And are too many cooks in the FCPA kitchen ruining enforcement? Finally, the trade sanctions fines hit all-time highs. These and many other stories on This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox and Jay Rosen. Thanks so much for listening. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and now a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist and the Voice of Compliance, together with Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors, for This Week in FCPA, episode 164 for the week ending July 26, 2019, the Microsoft and Facebook Settle Edition. So we have Facebook announcing a settlement with the FTC and Securities and Exchange Commission, Microsoft settling an outstanding FCPA enforcement action with both the DOJ and the SEC, and a plethora of other top compliance and ethics stories. So, Jay, you want to just hit it? Let's dive right in. Well, let's start with Facebook, because I think that would probably be the biggest news story of the week, Jay. Facebook settles with the FTC for $5 billion. That's five with a B, big ones. Uh, they settle with the SEC for a paltry, one might even say piddly, $100 million. So uh, really interesting settlements, uh, of course, coming out of the uh, uh, privacy scandals around uh, Cambridge Analytica, uh, Facebook's violation of its prior consent agreement with the FTC, a lot of divisiveness at the FTC itself with the two Democratic commissioners voting against the settlement. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg saying that Facebook had agreed to terms and conditions far beyond what was required under law. Um, one of, uh, I guess, a couple of interesting things, certainly from the compliance perspective, Jay, is the board of directors is directed to uh, put uh, a privacy uh, component in the board itself and that um, requiring a separate board committee to focus and supervise privacy privacy issues. Uh, this is, sends a really significant message about not only the board supervising privacy, also data protection, but also compliance. The implication is clearly that it's the board's responsibility to ensure that compliance with these F, uh, plethora of regulations be uh, uh, correctly over, overseen. Also, 
there is a new privacy compliance component to Facebook, uh, really uh, consistent with what we've seen over the years with uh, FCPA compliance requirements in FCPA enforcement actions. And also, Mark Zuckerberg now has to personally certify that they are in compliance with the settlement agreement. So, um, as in any settlement, Jay, there's give and take both ways, and uh, what certainly seemed to happen with this one. Um, the um, Kevin LaCroix writing in the DNO diary uh, really wants to emphasize this as a major risk for corporations going forward. Uh, I would just say that on the risk side, if your business is data, you bet it's a high risk. But uh, if your business, particularly other people's data, but if your business is something different, tangible goods, products, services, uh, it may not be as important or as high a risk. Certainly a data breach is up there. But it really he really emphasizes this from the risk perspective. Jacqueline Jager over Compliance Week uh, looks at the SEC complaint uh, going forward. And really um, the consideration we need to have here, Jay, is that now going forward, with any uh, GDPR or other privacy or data breach situation where a regulator finds there could well be a Securities and Exchange Commission fine uh, because the company did not report it and uh, certainly material. And, of course, follow-on lawsuits. Uh, that's one thing Kevin LaCoy po- uh, points out, too. So lots to think about from the compliance perspective from Facebook uh, going forward. Uh, We also had, Jay, what I ended up considering a very significant FCPA enforcement action uh, involving Microsoft. Do you want to tell us about that? Sure. Uh, Microsoft paid the Department of Justice and the SEC a combined $25.3 million on this past Monday for our offenses related to operations in Hungary, Saudi Arabia, Thailand, and Turkey. Uh, The fraud in Hungary called for... um, paying a criminal penalty of $8.75 million, and the Microsoft division there entered into a three-year non-prosecution agreement. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, Microsoft also disgorged $13.78 million to the SEC, plus pre-judgment interest of $2.78 million. Uh, in the article that we linked to from uh, Dick Casson in the FCPA blog, he goes on to talk about the different uh, schemes that were in Hungary, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and Thailand. And again, like we've seen in some of these matters in the past, uh, people giving different uh, inflated discounts, setting up slush funds. So uh, <clears throat> when we look at the face value, $25 million, uh, it pales in comparison to what we just spoke about. But where do you see the significance here, Tom? So a couple of things, Jay, perhaps three points. Being a good lawyer, I always have to talk in threes. Uh, one is the, uh, it seems to me this is really uh, not the fruition, but it really cements the impact of the FCPA com- corporate enforcement policy announced by Rod Rosenstein back in November of, of 2017. And this is really the model for enforcement going forward. We had criminal acts involved in Hungary. We had Microsoft Hungary uh, agreeing to the facts as they were presented in the settlement document, yet not being criminally prosecuted, not even receiving a deferred prosecution agreement, receiving a non-prosecution agreement, an NPA. So uh, clearly the uh, FCPA corporate enforcement policy is working. Uh, Microsoft did not self-disclose, so they did not, they were not eligible to receive a declination. And, um, 
because of the criminal acts at the highest levels in the Hungarian subsidiary, they did not receive full 50% discount for their remediation and, and investigation, but they did receive a 25% discount and they did receive a um, NPA. And if we maybe take it a step further through the Benchkowski memo from um, October 20. Uh, 18, uh, with the FCPA corporate enforcement policy, 2019 guidance, we see uh, one of the things that your colleague Eric Feldman has talked about consistently, which is there's really a great opportunity for companies who find themselves under investigation if they move forward to uh, extensively remediate, and that's what uh, Microsoft did and continues to do. So, and I think that led directly to the NPA. So I think that's a big lesson. Number two is internal controls. It's not simply enough to have an internal control uh, because we had internal controls here. We did not have internal control override. Uh, so it wasn't a situation where someone's manipulating the internal controls. You had a con- clear internal control failure. And the internal control was there was a bi- something called a Microsoft Business Desk, which granted discounts above the standard discount range. And the Hungarian subsidiary used uh, excessive discounts at, as a pot of money to fund the bribe. The uh, Global Business Desk approved these discounts between 28 to 32%, so obviously quite large, uh, basically on the word of the Hungarian business unit. And the word they gave was, hey, we need to do this for competitive uh, balance and competitive reasons. So uh, without any business justification, without any data, without any forms, without anything. Uh, so you really had the people who were the internal controls because this was not an automated system. It was a manual control. And as Matt Kelly is wont to put, uh, remind us, when you have a manual system, you have more room for manipulation. And and here we had the manipulation totally uh, within a failure. And then the third point, and uh, you have to glean this from the email sent out by Brad Smith, the president of Microsoft, where he talked about the transaction monitoring system put in place by Microsoft. This was obliquely referenced in the SEC cease and desist order. But I saw a presentation at <clears throat> Converge 18, Conversant's annual conference held last year, where uh, representatives of Microsoft and I believe PwC talked about the transaction monitoring system they put in place. It was not in reference to the uh, then ongoing FCPA investigation, but it's clear now what we saw was this transaction monitoring system. And uh, I'm not sure if I can uh, pull up the quote here uh, that I wanted to uh, use, but the um, transaction monitoring system <coughs> is. Um, <coughs> By using, uh, this is Brad Smith, the president, by using machine learning to help identify transactions and automatically flag those heightened compliance risks, we now run billions of dollars in deals in 57 countries through this transaction monitoring system and have a team apply additional scrutiny to these transactions. Well, that's a very robust transaction monitoring system, and that's uh, the kind of thing uh, that I think is the last takeaway. That's the direction we're moving Um and I could go on and on, but that's not the sole focus of this podcast. So uh, let me ask you, Jay, because this is something you think about a lot and affiliated monitors. Can an ethical culture be measured? Well, that's a great question. And uh, somebody whose name we hear week in and week out, it seems, uh, this comes to us from Vera Sherapanova writing in the FCPA blog. And uh, she talks about the fact that 
recently with all the guidance that's coming out of the DOJ with Benskowski's um, memos in 2018 and the news guidance in 2019, more and more people are asking the question is, can you measure uh, ethical and cultural compliance? And Vera says that with a resounding yes, you can. She talks about five different things that you can measure. First of all, achievability of targets, goals, and tasks. Take a look at the way goals are set as it affects people's behavior. Therefore, a company's goal setting and incentive structure probably offers the best indicator as to whether compliance is taken seriously. Next thing to look at is communication. Um, more, if you give the employees more room to talk about moral issues, the more they do this, the more they will learn. Third is leadership, not only from the tone of talk, but just the ability to influence and motivate others. Fourth factor to look at is organizational justice. And although this is commonly associated with personnel-related decisions, whether employees are treated fairly tends to be a high marker of ethical culture. And last but certainly not least, accountability. Clarity as to what constitutes desirable and undesirable behavior together with a willingness to take responsibility, especially if things go wrong. Uh, she cautions that this is not a one-size-fits-all solution, but be sure to measure the key underlying ingredients of an ethical culture instead of surfacing common patterns of behavior. So it's a great article, and we link to it in the show notes. Jay, next up, we had a rare written article by Mary Shirley, our colleague at Fresenius. I say rare because she is one of the two great women in compliance co-hosts, so we typically see her on a podcast. But Mary wrote a really interesting article that I hope compliance practitioners will uh, certainly take a look at. Uh, and it involves something Mary calls a pulse check. And uh, the thing that struck me about it, Jay, was not only was uh, many of her ideas innovative, they were very low cost, and they are things that I think everyone can do. And what a pulse check is, is basically seeing, is your compliance training sticky? Uh, and at Fresenius, they did this uh, with an annual compliance event, which had a carnival theme. And what they did was try to see whether or not people were really uh, learning the training and whether it was sticking with them. So they did things like a Jeopardy-style contest um, for in-person questions about the compliance program, uh, lucky draws around um, compli compliance uh, gifts and prizes, a ring-toss game where players must correctly answer compliance questions in order to earn rings to throw, and a spin-the-wheel, uh, not spin-the-bottle, spin-the-wheel with seven elements of an effective compliance program and relevant questions of each, now, the questions were really uh, not rocket science. They were things like, who is the chief compliance officer? What is the compliance hotline? Where can you access the code of conduct? So, um, you know, they were fairly basic questions, Jay, but I thought it was a very, very interesting approach to try not to necessarily make compliance fun, although spinning a wheel around the uh, seven elements of uh, the uh, uh, U.S. Sensing Guidelines, I can't think of a better way to spend your afternoon, but... Um, the, uh, you know, having that kind of, uh, just, uh, let's have fun. Let's talk about compliance. Let's have everybody's memory jog for a few minutes. I thought that was a kind of an interesting approach to take. Well, I think Mary is just so, um, 
very excited about what she does and she's constantly trying to keep things new and fresh and uh, we're happy to see her contribute uh, in writing to the CCI blog. So uh, kudos to you, Mary. Uh, I also have a piece that ran in the Corporate Compliance Inside blog this week. It's part three of my five-part series taking a look at suspension and debarment. And this week I looked at the convergence between FCPA and suspension and debarment. And under the FCPA, uh, the conduct to incur a violation does not necessarily require actual bribery or corruption. When one considers the FCPA, practically any business would fall within the def definition of a contractor. Uh, that leads us to the discussion. There was a paper written by uh, two folks at the South Texas College of Law, uh, Nicholas Wagner and Professor Drury Stevenson, and in a piece they entitled, FCPA Sanctions Too Big to Debar. And the author stated that the federal government is sometimes too dependent on a particular set of large private sector corporations for equipment and services. And one solution for the issues regarding fines and penalties for FCA, FCPA violators is debarment and suspension. They urge that debarment would be a significant deterrent for U.S. government contractors and would increase compliance with the FCPA. So um, that's going to lead us into something called present responsibility, which I will address next week. And present responsibility is the underlying basis of action involving excluding a partner, a party from federal antitrust uh, marketplace, uh, not antitrust, sorry, from the federal marketplace and leading to suspension and debarment. So as I said, we'll pick up with um, part four next week. Um, next up, Tom, we have another article coming to us from Compliance Week and Jacqueline Jager. And she takes a look at five compliance lessons from Walmart's FCPA settlement. What's she thinking about, Tom? So uh, once again, uh, a very prescient article by Jacqueline, always spot on. And uh, I'm just going to run through her five uh, key lessons. One, an anti-corruption program on paper is meaningless without controls. Uh, you know, I cannot agree with that more. And that really speaks to uh, why those people who advocate a compliance defense are just never going to succeed because this is all they want is a paper program without any meaningful controls. Number two, third-party intermediaries require due diligence. Uh, this has been a message of the FCPA for, uh, you know, as long as I've been working in this area, certainly as long as you've been working in this area. The Now, the underlying facts that Walmart got Walmart in trouble did happen a long time ago, but it's important to, uh, I think, reiterate that message, Jay, that third-party intermediary due diligence is required and it must be documented and it must be audible. Compliance controls must be centralized. I think one of the disastrous steps Walmart took in the middle of their uh, Mexico imbroglio was to create something called freedom within a framework, which allowed uh, individual business units and individual foreign subsidiaries to uh, create their own compliance program. And that's just an unmitigated recipe for disaster. Uh, and that's exactly what happened to uh, Walmart in several countries. Uh, procedures uh, and processes to monitor, track licenses and permits. Um, this is a kind of a government re regulation, uh, government control uh, situation, Jay, and, and it just makes sense that you track these because uh, this is an area that, unfortunately, has government touch points, so could um, imp impact your FCPA and anti-corruption Compliance training is essential. 
that you must communicate to literally uh, all of those employees in the field that bribery corruption is wrong, will not be tolerated. And uh, to Walmart's credit, uh, I would say they have uh, engaged remediation in all of these. But if you uh, are looking at your program, I think it's a great way for uh, you to benchmark against your own program, Jay. Uh, so next up from um, Jonathan Roche in Dipping Through the Geometries, takes a look at the Chinese Central Commission for Discipline Inspection, and uh, they will be placing anti-corruption inspectors in the Belt and Road Initiative companies, rather countries. Uh, on July 18th, the Financial Times reported that the Chinese Grand Commission for Discipline Inspection, which is the acronym is CCDI, the Communist Party's mechanism for investigating corruption and misconduct by party officials, plans to expand its anti-corruption campaign overseas by embedding officers in countries participating in China's Belt and Road Initiative. According to Lai Yifan, the CCD director, the scale of the massive BRI project, which has been projected to exceed $1 trillion, that's with a T, is prompting CCDI to expand the presence internationally to monitor the activity of Chinese companies. So uh, it's basically, uh, he concludes and says, the decision to expand the international reach of CCDI, whose authority was substantially enhanced last year, reflects a recognition of the Chinese government that it needs to pursue BRI-related corruption far more aggressively if it is to succeed in persuading other companies that its commitment to a clean silk road is genuine. So uh, we, uh, in past, have been skeptical about Chinese enforcement of anti-corruption and anti-bribery laws, but it seems that even uh, $1 trillion out there um, may be enough to motivate them to work with other companies and countries in Asia and try to limit uh, further corruption. Next up, we look at the question of whether the CFTC's involvement in FCPA enforcement to, puts too many cooks in the kitchen. So, Jay, uh, this is from uh, Helen Zhang writing in the GAB. Uh, always a great read. I, I urge everyone to subscribe to it on a daily basis. And she looks at the CFTC's recent anti-corruption enforcement initiative. This is particularly um, uh, prescient given this week. It turns out the mining company Glencore is being investigated by the CFTC for FCPA, and viola FCPA violations. Next up, a celebration with Michael Volkoff of his 100th episode anniversary show over on Corruption, Client, Crime, and Compliance. That's his uh, site for both his blog and podcast. This was the 100th episode of his podcast series. I was lucky enough to uh, be his honored guest on this, so uh, check out that. Uh, we really had a lot of fun on the 100th anniversary show. This week, I had a, a special five-part podcast series, which was sponsored by Affiliated Monitor on the use of monitors by state attorney generals with Managing Director, AMI Managing Director, Jerry Coyne. In part one, we introduced the role of state AGs in multi-state litigation. Part two was the big tobacco litigation and how really that changed everything. Part three is litigation in the post-tobacco world. Uh, and part four is current state uh, multi-state litigation challenges, and part five is the road ahead. Uh, a couple of announcements. First of all, our colleague Doug Cornelius participates in an annual two-day, 192-mile pan-mass bike ride challenge. It is 
in about two weeks. And in this, Doug and uh, is one of many participants who raised money for the fight against cancer. I hope you will join me again in supporting Doug by no- donating to the Pan Mass Bike Challenge. I've linked to it, uh, information on it, on Doug's ride, why he rides, and the significance of this to him. There's a donation button. So if you have uh, 25 or $50, I would really appreciate it if you'd help honor Doug Cornelius, honor the friends he's lost to cancer, honor his 192-mile uh, bike ride, uh, which I do not do anymore, but he still does. So please join me in donating to the Pan Mass Bike Challenge. And finally, if you happen to be attending the National Speakers Association event, Influence 2019, next week in Denver, I hope you'll join me uh, uh, where I participate in a panel hosted by Jeffrey Hazlett, the founder and CEO of C-Suite Radio, of which this podcast is a proud member. Uh, On the morning of Tuesday, July 30, 7.30 to 8.30, uh, we're going to have a breakfast panel, which we're going to cover ideas, promotions, partners, and processes all around podcasting. Uh, if there's one thing I like talking about as much as compliance is podcasting. So I hope you will uh, join us for this most interesting panel. Uh, it's my first National Speakers Association conference. So uh, if you've been a longtime attendee, I'm looking forward to meeting you and learning more about uh, being a member of the National Speakers Association. Uh, Jay has left us, so it's going to be left to me to say I do this week. So on behalf of Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors, this is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist and the Voice of Compliance, wrapping up the week that was in FCPA for the week ending July 26, 2019, the Microsoft and Facebook Settles Edition. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. If you have any questions to me, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Thanks again for listening to this week, and I hope you'll join us again next week where we take up some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.